0: Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Ross Berman is back. Ross, thanks for taking time out of your Friday. No, looking forward to the conversation, Dave. Thanks. Um, the last time we talked, you were here with your son, with, with Tom, and, and we talked about all the work that he's doing. Um, can you give it a quick update on that before we get into the topic for the day? Yeah, sure. So,
1: He is currently working on planning a large event in his town um, as a rally to kind of get like-minded folks together and um, provide a voice to the youth who wants to move forward with getting some of the controls that he had discussed on our previous podcast in place in his county. Um, He's working through getting permits and insurance and all the red tape that we described before. Uh, also, he is um, working to get on the county docket to talk to the county board of supervisors, so making a lot of good headway as it relates to um, where he wants to go with that group, and the group has grown, and he's actually in talks to do some co-sponsor events with other groups in the area, so he's making a lot of headway, which is great.
0: Awesome. Thank you. So for those of you who didn't get a chance to listen to that, I'm going to include a link in the show notes to that podcast, but the whole conversation was about how, um, Ross's son was, was very interested in participating in some of the black lives matter stuff that was going on. And they had conversations about some of the protest things that were happening, which were not quite as organized as they could have been in their area. And, um, Ross encouraged his son to, to find a way to really have a, a deep impact. And so um, Tommy's been working on changing changing the laws, right, in the local area.
1: Yeah, he's uh, he's doing, you know, organic change in his local government, learning that process. And um, based on history and these types of movements, the protests are a great catalyst to make change, but they don't in and of themselves make change doing the, paperwork part of change is also very important. So you may go and hear uh, Dave talk at, a, at an Agile event, but you actually have to put pen to paper to make the change stick. So that's the pro- part of the process he's going in, into now, and it's great to watch and great to be a part of.
0: Yeah, it's, really, it's a really inspiring interview. And it's it, to me, it's very heartening to know that that he's following through with all that stuff. So um, tell him congratulations. And I'll also include a link to the group in case anybody wants to sign up and support the group in any way. Um, but that's not- Yeah, the- they might be looking for donations
1: soon, Dave, uh, <laughs> to get this insurance policy to hold their event. So um, anybody who wants to check it out and, and be a part of it, and if you're local to the- Northeastern Pennsylvania area, or even if you're not, we have a lot of friends across the country have joined and, and put forward, um, their opinions. And also, uh, they're doing a call for speakers for their event. So if anybody has oh, any wow. direct uh, experience or anything like that, and could make it to the area in a couple weeks to do the event, um, by all means, please, uh, support the group. It's, it's a great bunch of kids and they're doing a lot of stuff, um, in their community.
0: That's great. All right. Thank you. Um, okay, we're going to switch gears now. We're going to talk about some fairly complicated stuff that happens in a lot of organizations, especially folks who are listening to this podcast. If you work in one of those companies that's trying to manage a switch over to Agile or trying to have Waterfall and Agile exist at the same time, we're going to talk about how to cope with some of that stuff. But um Right before we do that, Ross, could you give these folks some background on kind of your, you know, what you do and where you come from? Sure, um, so I do large
1: scale enterprise business transformations to Agile. I primarily focus on the business side of the transformation, so how do we create the right infrastructure, process, architecture, and all those good things to enable the transformation to continue to be successful. Um, As you well know, and I'm sure all your listeners do, uh, agile transformations that happen just in the scope of the IT department are usually pretty um, successful, but they're locally optimized. And so once we start meeting intersection points around business planning and other areas of the business, like we're going to talk about today, where there's um, different complexity and different time horizons, uh, that software is a lot faster and usually adopts these changes quicker. So my focus has typically been on how do we get the business part of the group to change and feed into the software development process in the right way, but also change their mindset around how to do business planning as a whole um, across all the avenues of business.
0: All right, cool. Thank you. So I'm going to try to summarize it, make it really short. You, You actually used some of the words beforehand, but for all the companies that say they're doing Scrummer fall or waggle or whatever they want to call it. They've got one foot in the pool of agility and the entire rest of their torso is still locked in the cement brick of waterfall. And they're trying to have both things happen at the same time and coordinate stuff and plan stuff. And my experience has always been that every time that happens, whatever deadline is established between two teams, the agile people are standing there waiting, looking at their watches going, where the hell are those waterfall guys? And they're like two blocks down the way going, we're 99%. We're almost there. (laughs) Does that fit what you've seen?
1: Yeah, sometimes. And sometimes the uh, waterfall part is very predictable. It's just that it's predictably slow depending on what they're doing. And, a lot of times the agile folks are waiting, but they're missing a lot of opportunity from an innovation perspective, um, to implement some of their things. So they're going off of that two year old plan. And like, I'm sure we've all seen this, but you'll have your, your waterfall project plan and you'll see your agile sprints section in there. And it'll just have two week blocks, sprint one through whatever. And, um, if we're waiting on things that are on a different time horizon, and take longer to manifest to be able to introduce that. We kind of push those to the right, but we don't adjust the software plans very well. So we do the same thing, even though we might've learned a bunch of uh, things
0: that we could have innovated on because we've already made those investments um, to do things a certain way. So I'm really curious to hear your opinion about that idea of the places that are more traditional where it's just easier for people to lay out all the sprints in a Gantt chart. I actually did that for a a place one time, and I just wouldn't put anything into the sprints. I would fill them in afterwards with whatever we delivered.
1: Yeah, and even that is is pretty uh, cutting edge, Mr. Pryor, because a lot (laughs) of times people have just closed the sprint out, um, and it'll say, like, sprint one, uh, you know, development, test, and then they'll close out those activities in their plan, not really understanding if the sprint commitment was made, if everything passed the test, you know, what the um, carryover work might be, uh, what the shuffling priority, what the shuffling feature timeline looks like based on the lessons learned in those sprints. They're really just checking the box. Yep. Sprint one's completed. That two weeks is done and we have sprint two in the,
0: you know, coming next. So they just did a bunch of work and they're actually just tracking the time has passed. Like it's right. not, nothing's in a shippable state. They didn't include testing or deployment or anything in the sprint. It's just basically waterfall. It's a phased approach to work.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's probably like in my experience, it's completely disconnected from the sprint itself. It's, it's a, a manager managing a timeline and on the timeline, it says the sprint started and ended. So the sprint's obviously done. And they're not really checking in um, necessarily. It sounds like you were in yours, but a lot of the places I've seen, they're not really checking in to see what actually happened in the sprint. They just know that the, the sprint planning happened, and then sprint happened, and then sprint closeout happened, and they're, yep, we're on schedule. This sprint took two weeks as designed, um, but we don't know what that actually means from uh, a backlog perspective and how it impacts that backlog whether or not we save time, whether we pulled more work in or not, like the agile team's just handling that. And this integrated project manager who's looking at timelines across multiple spheres of the business is just checking the boxes off.
0: Okay. So now I want to play, I want to try to play the role of project manager and, and have a little, I don't know, put, put those shoes back on and try to see if I can, make an argument for this and then get into how we extend it across to the agile team. So if I'm in a traditional minded organization, they're expecting to see certain kinds of reporting. Maybe it's coming from the PMO, maybe management, maybe it's my own dysfunctional expectation. I feel like it's my job to plan out everything or to show that I have a plan. And so I want to put all these sprints into a timeline so I can show when the sprints are going to happen. And then it just naturally flows that I would schedule things into sprints the same way I do in a Gantt chart. And I don't see why that's such a big problem. What's the issue with that? Oh, it's
1: not. Yeah. I don't have a problem with somebody doing it. It just seems like it's wasted effort. Um, and I think like having a calendar of events, like as a divorced parent, like I have a calendar of events and then I have my girlfriend's calendar of events and her kids events and we have all these calendars of events and we're managing to make sure that we make it to the things we are supposed to be at and that, you know, the kids are successful in their activities or whatever, but, um, there's an actual reason to have those events in the calendar. Um, what is the impact to the, to the launch of a product, especially when that's cross-functional, let's say, um, hardware and software, if the sprint, planning event didn't happen or did happen. Like how does that actually impact the success of the product that you're launching or the product project that you're managing? Um, Cause you're just tracking that an activity happened. So really what, what I would want to do if I was a project manager and granted, I told you this many times, I wasn't the best project manager when I did it, but I'd rather know what happened during the sprint. So if, these three features were supposed to be uh, built, tested, and deployed. Did that happen? And if it didn't happen, what's the plan to get that? Or did we make a decision that that feature is no longer required or whatever? And what's the change of the overarching thing that's going into the box that I'm shipping to a customer? So I think it's tracking. Tracking the stuff isn't a bad thing at all. It's what are the details that you're tracking and then, how does that detail actually impact your maybe slower moving aspect of a project?
0: Do you think when you, when you're working with these organizations, do you find that people struggle understanding the difference between, like you're talking about tracking. So you're looking at things that have happened and keeping a record of historically what's taken place. And I think a lot of people, when they come to planning stuff out they think about what they want to have happen. And it's all this, it's not even predictive because it's like just hope and perf, you know, best case scenario. Or maybe you're pretending you're doing worst case scenario, but you're squeezing it all together and saying, this is how my life will evolve. And it's independent of the opportunity to learn and adapt and inspect. Yeah, and, and like some of that
1: stuff is, is valuable um, when you're kind of hoping And then you have optionality in that hope, right? Like the client I'm working with right now has an aspirational launch date, an expected launch date, and a worst case scenario launch date. And that's not just to see when the product's going to be launched on the calendar, but those actually have extremely um, variable revenue impacts to the success of that product once it launches. So if they hit the best case, they're going to gain you know, three to four months of revenue gains because the product's coming out earlier. If they hit it at the time they're expecting, their revenue targets are even to what they planned in their strategic plan. And if they miss, well then they're losing revenue every, every week if they're not in market and they can understand the impacts of that. So it's tracking the date for a purpose. When I'm just tracking a sprint open close, I'm just, I'm basically saying, yep, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, et cetera, happened. And now they're behind us and the next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are going to happen. And we're not really getting into the meat of how that impacts overall the success of the business. We're just tracking that the sprint cycle is the sprint cycle.
0: Okay.
1: Um, That's why I always laugh when when people are like, I don't know if we're going to hit the date. Like, well, the date's coming. I don't know what we're going to have when we get to that date. But I know that, you know.
0: I have a better way of of saying that. coming. I have a better way. (laughs) I always tell people okay. in class, my favorite thing about Scrum is if anybody ever asks you if you're on schedule, just look them square in the eye and say, dude, we're totally on schedule. We're always on schedule because the time box is over when it's over. If you want to know right. about the work, that's a completely separate conversation, but we're always on schedule.
1: Yeah, it's funny because like it, it seems like such a crucial, important thing to keep your eye on, but without the other detail, it's completely irrelevant. Because you know every day in the year is coming. So, yeah, we're going to hit, you know, August 31st. We're going to hit September 30th. But we don't know what we're actually going to have when we get there when we're just checking off the, the – the, the making sure the activities happened,
0: and We're not getting into the meat of what's the output of those activities. Do you find that – I mean, it seems to me like agile people, like they just – Having a conversation about whether or not the date's coming is not something I feel like I have to have. What we'll have by a certain date or what we have by a certain date, um, that is a conversation I'm having. But with Waterfall, it always seems like this, and I made this assumption. I'm saying this is somebody who's done this myself. The assumption is that work happens as planned, and when the date hits, everything we planned by that date will be done. And if that didn't happen, somebody screwed up. Potentially. Like there's no allowance for the fact that things go sideways.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you have a plan written on paper for a year and anything unpredicted happens, it could be a positive or a negative return, but there's going to be an impact to the date at which you're going to be done.
0: Yeah.
1: So something novel could happen. You're like, Holy crap. You know, this thing we didn't expect to happen until December happened yesterday. So now we're going to save you know three months um in our in our launch and go forward like that's great and that's like where that notion of positive and negative risk come in right like we focus a lot of our risk management on negative risks but positive risks could have intense um benefits to us if they're realized and risks aren't always negative but Um, if something happens and it gives us the ability to, like you were saying before, inspect and adapt on what we're doing because we got new information, we can actually have an extremely positive push in our, in our ability to get to market faster.
0: Yeah. Which means the rest of the business is going to have to adjust to it as well. Mostly. Right. And when we're talking about different time horizons,
1: software, you can make adjustments on, on an hourly daily basis because, you know, it's, it's clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you're dealing with things on different time horizons, like, um, manufacturing hardware or building a new pharmaceutical drug or something like that, like there's, there's a lot of set in stone kind of time horizons that you have to deal with. So when you learn something, the impact is, Um, uh, potentially greater because if you learn like, Oh, my new COVID vaccine kills COVID, but it gives you, um, you know, the flu, uh, maybe we don't want to put that out or, um, you know, the COVID vaccine keeps you from getting COVID, but, um, degradates your immune system to something else. Right. Like when you learn that, Um, you're, you're probably learning that a year before you're going to production because there's a lot of strict regulations around, um, how that drug is going to come out into the market and that, that could impact what you're going to do from a software perspective. Like there may be some kind of analytics engine that you're building and you learn about it a year in advance. Like you're, you have, you're going to make up a ton of time with that analytics, but you're not going to make up any time with the drug in and of itself. So how do you, how do you have like an integrated schedule when you're dealing with some things that happen like two to five years in a time horizon, some things that happen like one to two years in a time horizon and then software where you're talking, it could be days, weeks, months yeah. or whatever you're planning to.
0: But doesn't, in some ways it almost seems like it's, it would be easier because all that, if it's hardware or whatever it is, you know, manufacturing stuff. Those are kind of known things. I mean, unless there's some massive change, we can look at what's happened in the past and guess how long long it's going to take to manufacture enough of a vaccine to get it around the planet. Or guess how long it's going to take based on what we've seen to get this package from point A to point B. Or deploy servers to all our offices. I mean, those aren't things where we are necessarily inspecting and adapting as we go. I mean, we could, but we could also not.
1: Yeah. And I think you're and that uh, adapt cycles are in different phases, right? Where like in software you can inspect and adapt every time you have something, uh, able to be deployed. Um, okay. where with these manufacturing things you have to do a lot of the learning before you, you know, start putting materials on a production line. Because once you start putting materials on a production line, you start pumping out, you know, hundreds of these things an hour or whatever. Um, like the ship has sailed or you've just wasted all that inventory and and investment into those devices. So there's some times where um, you need to be able to be um, agile, but you're agile in your planning cycle, maybe not in your delivery cycle as it relates to building a device or building a a new vaccine.
0: Okay. So it's almost like you have a higher – risk of variability of, of stuff like this in the beginning, then you might further down the path or with agile work as opposed to manufacturing type work.
1: Right. And that's where you get into what, how do you create an agile business model when you have these multiple time horizons of manufacturing at play where you're trying to get all of those different time horizons to the client at the same time. So how do you push your agility, how do you push that flexibility and agility into making uh, business, um, business agility decisions when you already have things that are halfway through a five-year cycle or halfway through a two-year cycle and the ship's kind of already sailed? And then how do you push that variability down, right? Like how can you decouple um, a device being manufactured on a line and how can you make it flexible enough that the firmware that you can release faster can kind of impact the the way that you hit the market versus the device design itself. And then how do you segment out those decisions in that plan, right? Cause we're still, there's going to be strategic planning. And there's going to be annual budgets and there's going to be revenue targets and there's going to be all these things. And most of these large scale customers that, that I'm working with, you know, have shareholders and investors and people to answer to. And you have to be able to give them enough of a plan to where they feel comfortable, you know, continuing to invest in a specific product line, but also provide yourself enough flexibility to to flex the market demand as you earn things. And it's an extremely difficult place to play, and it may require um your agility and funding. It may require agility in inspect and adapt cycles and how you're learning about these things. It may impact, you know, um, how you get things approved through a regulatory environment and then package them, or maybe uh, even impact the way that you're uh, getting your revenue. Like, are you going direct to consumer? Are you going for healthcare? insurance provider, reimbursement, like how do you go to market? Because all those things have a broad impact on the activities in these different time horizons that are required to create a fully um, coupled
0: product to market. I'm wondering if the issue is, is n- if it's not really a problem so much as it is, people just have this weird perception that things are going to be different than they really are. Like I know if, I, if I'm building a car, like I have an automotive company, I build a car from scratch. We design the whole thing. We keep working on the software. We know that at some point we've got to build these cars, get them on the trucks, and send them to the dealers. So there's going to be a cutoff point where we can make changes to the actual physical components of the car. But the software, we can be updating that, I mean, all the way to the things on the showroom floor, we could send some, you know, come up with a way to update the software that's in the car. Um, and even after it's- Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So theoretically, I'm, I'm assuming that we could do that. But even if we couldn't, we know that there's a cutoff point. So if you have these hard marks in the sand and you know that they're there, doesn't that just tell you like, oh, hey, we can't change anything after this date, no matter what but the other stuff we can work on.
1: Yeah. And in your car point, right? Like uh, brake, brake systems have to be approved through a right. safety regulation. And I don't remember the exact regulation, but like your brake system has to be approved that, yeah, your brakes are going to work and they're going to work in this stopping distance and yada, yada, yada. Right. So is there software involved in the braking system? And if there is software involved in the braking system, how variable is that software once you've gotten the braking system approved? And then is that part of a single build that goes into the car? Or is that a separate capability of software and hardware that goes into the car as a um, particular you know, product or a particular unit that the manufacturing line has to pick from, but then other software can be variable? So now you're like, okay, we need to get this thing that's regulated, approved in this manner, but, like, the way that the software works for the radio doesn't need to need to follow those same stringent guidelines. So how do we increase our agility around the direct-to-consumer, the things that the consumer is going to care about, like how easy it is to switch my radio station while I'm driving or switch between my Android and your iPhone, Um, when we're, you know, shuffling music on our road trip or whatever, and the braking system software is a year old because it got approved to break the car in a certain way.
0: I think that's awesome. You just completely destroyed my entire theory. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm thinking about the shape of the car, the actual physical body of the car, and, yeah, that's going to have a cutoff point, but if the software that I'm creating, if I'm tweaking it, I get the braking system approved, and if I want to make changes to the braking system after that, do I have to get every single minor update revalidated? Like where's the cutoff point there? So I guess that does get a lot hairier.
1: Right. And Good. when you're when you're thinking about like uh drug protocols for clinical trials or medical device protocols for human factors validation um to make sure that the device or the drug is not gonna kill anybody, um it's it's very similar. So how do you componentize not only the hardware or not only the hardware and the molecule working together and then also the software in a way that you can push some of your market variability to certain software components, knowing that other software components are relying on hardware components that have to be
0: approved. And that some of those those software components may change. Right. So this and is a mess. if the
1: regulated software, yeah, if the regulated software components change, then you have to get it resubmitted. But if the non-regulated software components change, maybe you don't. And then how do you, if you planned out the whole delivery in your sprints and your project plan a year ago, um, how do you account for that variability in scope and in learnings along the way when it could create a three to six month turn in
0: regulatory submissions, yeah,
1: because your your dates on the page aren't going to help you with that.
0: Is this a problem? You think that I mean, when you when you go into companies and you interact with people at the senior level, do they really yeah. understand the depth of this situation?
1: It really depends. Like my current client has people all over the spectrum of uh, tactical understanding. So at the executive level, like some of them grew up in the company, you know, and started soldering chips on hardware, and are now, you know, in a, a VP, senior VP level at the company, making business decisions. Um, and some of, some people, you know, come from other places that were just doing software, or just doing um, devices without the the addition of actual molecules and the drug space and they have a different view. And I think like a lot of this comes down to the, the way that, or what we're managing when we're building these plants. And honestly, what I've seen on the pharmaceutical side, at least with the, the people I've been in contact with, is they're managing the submission process and the creation of documents. And they're not really managing the development because the development happens in other areas of governance and other controls that are put in place. So we have the overarching process to get the thing submitted and approved for use by the patient. And that's really a documentation problem and making sure the documentation gets approved. And then product development is, you know, kind of given to the experts who do the different products.
0: And they're two separate separate streams of work
1: it could be three separate streams of work, right? Because you could have, or four, you could have a drug, you could have a device, you could have software going to the patient, you could have software going to the doctor. And then the documentation. And the the documentation happens on all four of those, but if you're submitting everything together, there's a round of documentation that's for all four things at once. Um, And a slightly different level of documentation, but depending on how you're going to go to market, like, if you were just selling a braking system and you were Mopar, go back to your um, car analogy.
0: Yeah. If I was just
1: building a replacement brake system and I wanted to update the software on the brake system, I could do that as long as it would still fit in the car and still work with the car's main computer. No problem, but I would have to get that braking system reapproved. Um, but I wouldn't have to necessarily get the whole car reapproved because I'm selling this as like a aftermarket part or a replacement part or a retail part or whatever. And so I'm just talking about the part. Yeah, but um, look, at the, look at the
0: airplanes, in, the ones that where they changed the one thing and it broke all the other things and then the plane crashed into the ocean.
1: Yeah, there's, total, there's a total possibility of integration failure. That is for sure. But from a regulatory perspective, they may not need the proof that everything else on the car is gonna to stay together like you could put this brake system in and the axle falls off, right? Like you probably would figure that out before you submitted, hopefully. Um, But um, if you didn't, for some reason, then there could be an issue there. But with medical regulatory stuff that pharmaceutical companies have to go through, um, how you're going to market, um, how you're going to market will dictate the level of scrutiny and the amount of paperwork you have to submit to get approved. And then that also gets, that could be impacted, you know, a year before you even start the project based on, um, your, so how you're planning to book the revenue. Are you going to be a reimbursable provider for health insurance companies? or Are you going to be a um, competitive in the market, um, Solution that that consumers and maybe healthcare providers will pick as opposed to the health insurance company picking. That might dictate how your submission goes.
0: Okay. So, if I work at a company with this level of complexity and I'm listening to this podcast, the question I'm probably asking now is whose job is this going to be? Because this sounds like a total freaking nightmare. I mean, this is a ton of stuff you have to have domain expertise on and you have to be able to watch a whole lot of stuff at once.
1: Yeah. In, in my experience, this is totally not one person's job.
0: Okay. Um,
1: it's, it takes a village, right? Like raising a baby. Um, but at the same time, um, it's the structure and ensuring governance creates a path to compliance. So when we think of like systems first transformations, uh, we need to understand who the right people on, what levels of the team structure we're putting into place, who they're going to be, what are their roles and responsibilities? How do we cover all of the aspects of those jobs and different risk mitigations that have been built in our waterfall environment you know, that we're transforming? But how do we create it in a way where we have the right touch points and the right visibility into the work so that we're meeting all the requirements to, to be compliant with the regulatory process.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's where the complexity comes in. So the way that we have done this, at well, hold on before, b- before is, you
0: go further, can okay. you just do like 30 seconds on what a systems transfer systems first transformation is in case people aren't familiar with that?
1: Yeah. So a systems first transformation is basically putting in the right team structure, workflow, and, metrics to enable the system to cover all of the required jobs to be done activities and exit policies required to produce to output the right product and that right product needs to encapsulate all of the um, activities needed so if there's documentation needed the structure needs to account for that if there's software needed the structure needs to account for that if there's manufacturing needed, this, the structure needs to, um, needs to count for that. So it would be the right people at the right time with the right information making the right decisions to produce working tested product in compliance with any um, state, local, or federal laws that you need to actually get the product to market.
0: Okay. So, And I want to add one thing to this. So if if that didn't all totally sink in, we're talking about instead of just – Going in, training your teams and saying, change the culture, everything else will follow. This is create an environment that can enable and support the adoption of this stuff. Does that with what you said? You can't
1: fix it. Yeah, you can't fix these enterprise agility problems with scrum and like motivational science on the walls, right? So
0: practices. It takes a lot of hand waving too, man. Okay. It's not just signs on the walls. not just kittens on the walls. we got to wave our hands and jazz hands a lot and say it depends.
1: Yeah, and and that's true. I mean, there's a lot of cheerleading involved, right? I've played uh, armchair psychologist uh, to some people having struggles with this stuff. But yeah, so just putting scrum in place and just having um, a culture change uh, is not a way to create a sustainable transformation. So you may get a team or a couple teams working who really buy into the cultural aspect of it and really are open to adopting the, the process. But there's all these other things that are happening outside of that team that force an organization to stay um, doing things the way that they've always done them. And so there's other teams, there's other processes, there's intersecting processes and all, all that stuff. So in order to have a sustainable transformation, you're building a system that covers all of those, important aspects of the change and the practices are what you're going to do inside of that system to be more effective and efficient, deliver more quality products. And culture um, comes out of understanding what you need to do, driving towards the same vision as everybody else on the team and working within the system to escalate learn uh, you know and and drive forward that product yeah so um, a lot of people say culture is organic like I've, I've gone into a lot of companies like we have an organic culture and what that means to me is every team has their own culture and there's some cool signs on the wall that try to um, at a very high <laughs> level merge all those little subcultures into something that's focused forward
0: I'm supposed to be the jaded one on the podcast man Oh, I didn't get the memo. sorry, I did. <laughs> All right. So, so you, I apologize for interrupting you. I just wanted to make sure people were sorted out. So you were starting to talk about what happens when you go into the organizations.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you talked about whose job this is. Yeah. So what I've been working with in my current organization is where do the PMO type people, so our program, project, portfolio, manager type people, where do they fit into the system to provide the right level of oversight and reporting on what's going on across all these different time horizons and what, what do I do with them? Because right, you know, in our initial part of the transformation, we kind of left that group alone because we were focused on, you know, just software, just doing the, you know, software delivery aspect of the change. We got the, um, product team kind of going. And that was a cross-functional team across most of the different organizations. We had a portfolio team that was cross-cutting across all the organizations, but all these cross-cutting people were really just kind of hyper-focused in on how do we get this app, you know, through the process. And what we learned in doing that is there's these other governance bodies and other, other systems and other teams and other processes that have such a drastic impact on their ability to actually get that done that we needed to build more into our model and into our system to, you know, intake all of these processes and run them with our team. We had all the right people, but one person was going to this other committee meeting to approve the documents that the product team had delivered with all these other people who were, you know, completely decoupled from what we were doing. And then we had another member going to this other committee to do the same thing for this other set of documents. And they were just all following these other processes. So we were like, and then there was this group of PMO type people who were going to all these different committee meetings, trying to figure out, you know, got, what the They hell need something going to do.
0: on. <laughs>
1: yeah. And adjust their project plan accordingly based on all these things that are happening outside of the model. And, you know, I felt bad for them. Like they were running around with like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to collect all this data. Um, And for one of our executive steering committee meetings, I asked one of them for like the current status, you know, to put into a deck and like three days later they had tracked down all the loose ends and were able to produce their, you know, bi-weekly report for project status that went to the executive steering committee. And so I was like, wow, like, why did like no judgment, but why did that take so long? And then they explained it to me and I was like, okay, so now we need to inspect and adapt our transformation and build a new um, governance model that will encapsulate all of these things that, that the, project and program managers are tracking down outside of the governance model that influence what happens inside of it. We have to get it inside. So we created a role for them in the governance model. Um, and basically we, we are calling it the orchestrator, but we've given them the responsibility to connect the dots between all the different product and portfolio teams that have an impact on their product and portfolio team getting their work, their work done. So we have an orchestrator role, um with the portfolio group and we have orchestrator roles with the product groups
0: i like I, I really like the name of it because i always i always felt like part of my job was being a conductor in a symphony like getting all the things to dance together but this also sounds a lot to me like um, mickey went and got the, the brooms to dance and now there's a flood and they're trying to coordinate all these impossible things it's just so much to watch
1: Yeah, and it's so much, like, we've had, like, joking conversations about this before, right? Like, when we talked about PMO versus ATO on the other podcast you do. Um, But we we were really talking about how the PMO people are used to having kind of control and are used to kind of dictating the flow of work right? Like whether or not it was a good way or a bad way, like we could probably spend an additional hour talking about that, but that's what they were doing. And when we get a systems first transformation in place and we create transparency from an investment decision all the way down to the code that's being executed on a delivery team that enables that investment decision, um, a lot of that driving the flow of work goes away. And so then like, a lot of agilists like their next reaction is, well, we don't need project managers anymore. And like my response to that is always like, you have no idea what these poor people are doing in order to produce like whatever charts they're producing or in order to make sure that you get your device, you need to put software on or whatever. But it's not that we don't need them. It's that we don't need a separate group. We need them as part of the team. And the way I've kind of described Why and what they're doing is we have product and engineering folks. So our product manager, product owner, our solution architect, system architect type folks. And they're always focused on what are we going to do and when are we going to get it done? And they're focused on their portfolio, their product team, their delivery team, right? So I would call them like the department of the interior because they're focused on what's happening inside of our group. Why would I want them spending their time focusing on all the other minutia noise outside of that system, um, that needs to happen in order to get that stuff done. And so like at the very basic piece, when you're talking about scrum, the scrum master's job is facilitate the process and then orchestrate dependencies across teams. So our project manager or program manager folks are kind of doing that already. They're just doing it outside of the system. So let's bring them inside of the system. And then I always refer to them as like the department of the exterior. So everything that's happening exterior to the portfolio product delivery structure is being managed by this people, by these people and anything that they're bringing in from a, Oh no, this other team's going to be late or Hey, guess what? This other team was early. They'll bring into the department of the interior and the department of the interior will reshuffle the plan accordingly based on on that information. So they really work together um, very stringently. It's just they're focused on different things. I don't want that orchestrator person focused on what and when that's happening inside. I need them focused on what and when is happening all around the team yeah. so that we can have this team focused on the task at hand. And I think that's what gets lost in a lot of these transformations, especially when you look at groups that have like Uh, Release train engineers or super scrum masters or whatever you're calling them. They're really like agile practice focused. They're not necessarily dedicated to figuring out what the hell is going on outside of the group. so You can track that down and make sure that we're adjusting our, our plan accordingly.
0: Yeah, I worked with a team where I was a project manager working with the scrum team. And and my job was keep the rest of the company away from the scrum team and keep the scrum team away from the rest of the company. So I was basically just like translating stuff from one side to the other. And I always looked at it like my job was just to reduce friction because there was a lot of animosity between the two sides. So make it easy for each side to do their work. But I think where I can see a lot of PMs would struggle with that is it was so behind the scenes. They had no star time at all. And I'm not somebody who craves that, but there are a lot of people that like to be kind of the the big person, Um, which is where orchestrator might be really cool because they're going to go out and buy tuxedo jackets and get their little conductor stick and a podium and tell all the sections to get ready to play. But I'm wondering if there are people that head down that sort of ego driven route, it it almost seems like everything you're saying is true. And at the same time, it's kind of like they're one of those cops in the middle of a, you know, intersection. And instead of using the stoplights, they're waving people in which direction at which time to make sure nobody crashes. Does that fit? Does that fit or is that too simplistic?
1: No, I think that fits. I think, um, I don't, Project managers are so expensive and they're valuable. So it's not like a, a sunken cost. I'm not going down that, that hole. But I think that Scrum Masters can kind of fill that void um, at the delivery team levels. And I would rather focus my high cost, you know, super qualified project management type folks, you know, orchestrating across product tiers. And it'll also enable the Scrum Masters to kind of grow and learn that higher level of orchestration, and they can decide like, you know, do they want to keep on engineering focus? Do they want to move into a orchestration focus, you know? Um, because a lot of times you're gonna, you're gonna find Scrum Masters who are kind of new to the organization, maybe even new to um, doing any of this kind of work, like fresh out of college type folks, they might not know exactly what they want to do. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, like when you start merging like there's a lot of talk and we kind of delved into this a little bit on our PMO ATO talk, but like we talked a lot about the PMO becoming the ATO or the PMO people reporting into the ATO. Um, I, I try to steer away from that because I want the people who are focused on the work reporting into some structure who's getting the work done and the ATO is more about the transformation. So I don't even like when scrum masters report into ATOs or, I've seen some places where like product owners and scrum masters are the agile position. So they report into the ATO, like the ATO shouldn't be a, um, a full-time thing. It should be happening while you're transforming. And then as you kind of move into a place where you're continuously improving and things like that, the teams themselves should be able to handle that change. And so,
0: um,
1: ATOs probably aren't like a permanent organization that you would need to have. It's something that's very important during a transformation.
0: So does it get, re- I'm gonna ask this and then I have one final question before we wrap up, but does it get replaced? Or is it, I mean, because it sounds like you just replaced. said that after, after we're agile, they just figure it out.
1: No, I think like, I don't, I think the organization dissolves, but I think the people in the organization stay. Okay. Right. So like let's say you and I are running an ATO and, and you're the ATO leader and I'm one of the coaches, right? Like somebody's gonna still need to help them improve, but we can localize that improvement to each uh organization. Like we don't need an organization kind of moving the whole of the yeah. of the company towards the same. Like if one product team finds an efficiency and can locally optimize based on their local investment to do something this way, but this other slice of the organization can't, like we don't need to spoon feed that change to everyone because it doesn't make sense for everyone. I think when yeah. you're starting with a transformation and you have you know, your playbook and your plays that you're gonna run, that ATO is really important because it creates um, a sense of uh, unification around the system. But once the system is kind of well-oiled and going, like you're going to need to make tweaks and make some changes here or there, but I don't know that you need an organization dedicated to that.
0: Okay. I was just thinking like what happens if, you know, eight months down the road we uncover some big organizational impediment um, on a couple of teams and we need to figure out a way to coordinate our request of leadership to make some kind of organizational structural change to the company that having somebody who was going to be the voice and maybe it's just them having like a working agreement on how they're going to deal with it but having a way of of communicating that in the absence of an ato might be really helpful
1: yeah our outcomes uh our outcomes based plan with my current client to kind of get towards self-sustainability is that the positions remain but the positions get brought in to different levels of the organization. Okay. So instead of having its own organization, we're going to start that way and it's going to go that way until we're at a place where we feel like it's mature enough to kind of self remediate. Yeah. But as, but those positions will still need to be available. Like yeah. um, your ATO leader we, we're treating an ATO almost like it's another system of delivery, but it's delivering transformation products, not, right. you know, product products. And so those types of investment decisions around how are we going to structure an organization, what parts of the system are going to work for this team versus this other team, like those jobs still need to get done, Yeah, but they could be done on an investment by investment basis. And so your ATO leader type person would probably be part of that team that's making those investment decisions to enable strategic outcomes.
0: Okay, okay. Um, so I have one more question for you about this. We've talked about this at sort of like the, the team level, we've talked about it at the PMO, ATO level. For senior management or senior leadership, what do they need to know, or what do they need to be thinking about with regard to this topic?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So senior management has, they're really the ones that have the big, the biggest issue here. Um, and cause they're the ones who need to manage the investments over these different time horizons to meet uh, a far out business goal. Um, so they're the ones who need to keep kind of that alignment, that strategic alignment focused on the end goal and enable their groups that, that they have working for them to be specific on the pieces of the product they're working on and keep everybody kind of aligned to that strategic intent. So, um, they need to uh, really focus and really communicate and really be transparent about why they're making specific types of investment, what the strategic intent of those specific investments are, and why it's really important for all aspects of that investment to come to fruition to meet the revenue target they're going after. And sometimes there may be those long-range products have been on the market and we're trying to hit a new market segment, or we're trying to enable a customer base in the market ses- segment to be more successful with the problems that we're solving with that solution. And so there may be something that's long pole in the tent, but it's already available, and we're bolting on some de- you know device or software aspects to it to make it more consumable to that specific customer segment inside of that same market. So having the line of sight across all those time horizons and providing that North star is going to be their, their main thing to do. And especially when they kind of grow up in the organization, like me, like I grew up doing technology. So like my proclivity is always going to be to want to get into the weeds on technology. But me as, you know, business owner or whatever getting into the weeds on technology may cause some people to think that that's what they only focus and lose sight of some of those um longer time horizon things that are just as important as the software they have to be disciplined to stay
0: on that alignment path and you need to have the self-awareness to know that you're gravitating towards the thing that you're most comfortable with because you're most comfortable with it and pull yourself out of that and go after the less clear stuff
1: Yeah. I like, where is the company going in three years? Yeah. Right. How are we going to get there from a, from a business capabilities perspective? And then how am I going to invest in those business capabilities and then empower the team structure I'm making that investment around to drive the capability to market? Like I don't need to drive the capability to market. I'm investing, you know, $500, to get this portfolio product and delivery tier structure set up to go deliver that product for me. I just need to make sure that they know that that product that they're delivering is a key component to this go to market strategy that consists of these other two products that I need to get packaged together and delivered to my customer segment.
0: Yeah. Cool, this is a lot. Um, I appreciate you talking through this with me. This is pretty cool.
1: Um,
0: If people want-
1: Hopefully everybody's still awake.
0: (laughs) I think, I don't know, to me, this is like one of those ones where the people that this matters to, they probably tracked with it the whole time. And there was a couple really like big moments, I think, in there too, especially in case you missed it. There was a point where Ross actually said that he, this is an agile person, that project managers are really valuable, um, which is a nice thing to hear <laughs> So, on behalf of my people. Thank you. Um, what if these folks want to get in yeah. touch with you? Um, what's the best way for them to reach you?
1: Yeah, so I got an email and a LinkedIn link on my Leading Agile bio page. Um, I'm sure I'll share this out. Uh, feel free to reach out. I know on uh, the one we did with Tommy, there was a couple comments in, in the show notes. That was cool. I'm glad people were kind of interested in that. And so just reach out. Um, and I think you usually post like a, a link to that yeah, Leading I'll Agile page to when we do stuff. these things. So. Yep.
0: And yeah. I should have mentioned this in the beginning, but Ross and I work together. So. Um, but <laughs> he knows a lot of really smart stuff about things that, and he's got different viewpoints on things that, than I do. So I think it's always, for me, it's always really great when we get to talk. So thank you.
1: Yeah. It's fun to do these ones for project management Institute too, because we don't have to, um,
0: don't have to sell. Yeah. T- <laughs> yeah. No selling here. Right. Just a cool discussion. Yeah. Cool. Thanks man. Well, I hope you have a great weekend and t- tell your son good luck with his, with his work.
1: Yeah, I'll pass it along. I'll I'll make sure uh, he and his buddies listen to the podcast so they hear their shout out.
0: (laughs) Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks, Dave.